It's my distinct honor at the end of our annual conference to introduce the B. Kenneth Simon lecture. John, uh, Judge Don R. Willett was nominated to the U.S. Circuit of Appeals, sorry, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit on October 3rd, 2017, and confirmed by the Senate uh, by the comfortable margin of 50 to 47 two months later. Before that, he served on the Texas Supreme Court for over 12 years, having been appointed by Governor Rick Perry in August 2005. Before ascending to the bench, Judge Willett was Deputy Attorney General of Texas, serving under Greg Abbott, who later became governor himself. And before returning to Texas, Judge Willett was a Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the U.S. Justice Department's Office of Legal Policy, as well as serving in the White House as a Special Assistant to President George W. Bush and Director of Law and Policy for the Office of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives. Judge Willett's personal story makes his professional accomplishments all that more impressive. He was adopted by parents who hadn't finished high school and his dad died when Don was six. His mom waited tables to support the family. Uh, Don ended up graduating from Baylor University with a triple major, then from Duke University Law School with honors. It's perhaps this rags to riches story that caught the eye of Donald Trump's legal team, which put then Justice Willett on its list of potential Supreme Court candidates. Well, that or his lively and civic education focused Twitter feed which we all miss. Appropriately, Judge Willett will be speaking on flunking the founding, civil illiteracy and the rule of law. And I'll just let everyone know that you can submit questions while he's speaking. Uh, if you're on one of our social media channels, it's hashtag Cato Scotus. If you're on Zoom, just submit it through the Q&A. And one more thing, uh, uh, we kind of had our wires crossed, but this bow tie that I'm wearing, this constitution bow tie, used to belong to Judge Willett. And he has now the one that used to belong to me, which is this one, but in blue. Just one more item of uh, trivia and showing how uh, dedicated uh, Judge Willett is to the Constitution and constitutional education. So, uh, Don, please, the floor is yours. Elia, thank you so much for that generous introduction. I've got to say, it was far kinder and gentler than one I received many years ago. I was speaking to a Rotary Club in Texas and the treasurer introduced me and he covered all the normal bases where I went to school and jobs I'd held like he did. But then he made a jarring segue into how they really needed to raise the membership dues at the Rotary Club. And as he droned on, you could hear all these penny-pinching Rotarians start to moan and groan. And finally the treasurer, he got really fed up at all the whining he erupted and he bellowed, fine guys, but mark my words, if we don't raise our dues, we'll never get any good speakers around here. Mr. Willett, thank you for coming. So that was a lot kinder. I appreciate that. You did manage to omit the most important thing. My Aunt Lynn, my mom's baby sister, used to hang out with Elvis. I'm going to There we go. But I learned at a really young age, never, ever ask Aunt Lynn about her time with the king because, you know, she gets all shook up. So thanks for having me, or more accurately, streaming me from Austin, Texas. But even from afar, I'm really honored to find myself among those distinguished jurists and scholars who have delivered this lecture over the years. I grew up in a tiny town of 32 people. It was so small that, you know, our town square had only three sides. And 
The beauty of Zoom is you can't hear all the groaning, which is a, a thumbs up, but for a kid who grew up in a trailer surrounded by cotton and cattle, this opportunity is really high cotton for me. So thank you very much. Um, 2020 has been a wild ride. And I say that as a former rodeo cowboy. So we've, we were facing a confluence of overlapping crises, pandemic, recession, impeachment, social unrest. It seems that so far the most normal part of 2020 has been Tiger King. But we look for silver linings where we can, and the turmoil has perhaps sharpened our focus a bit on the three branches of government. So according to the 2020 just released Constitution Day Civic Survey, a whopping 51%, a majority of American adults can now name all three branches of government, which was up sharply from 39% last year, which itself was an all-time high going back about 15. But you know, truth be told, our nation still has a pretty abysmal civics IQ. We inhabit this age of miracles and wonders today with access to mankind's accumulated knowledge at our fingertips, but it's also an age of really staggering civic illiteracy. And our civic temperature may be high in 2020, but our civic knowledge is not. And there's a lot to indict, but hopefully through commendable events like today's symposium, perhaps we can move from indicting to informing and better still inspiring and invigorating. So 233 years ago today, the Rolling Stones cut their first album. No, though they are a combined 306 years old. A throng of Philadelphians waited outside Independence Hall. And like most Philly crowds, it was tense. So our constitution, I mean, our infant nation was floundering. The United States were anything but united. The Articles of Confederation had created this loose league of friendship, but the former colonies had yet to coalesce into a country. So for four sweltering months, delegates to the convention, they huddled in secret behind closed doors. And those on the outside were wary of those on the inside. And presiding, of course, was the venerated Virginian veteran, George Washington, the indispensable man. No Washington, no Republic. But Benjamin Franklin, he was the nation's Renaissance man. His achievements in science and diplomacy and letters, they were unrivaled. Franklin was the embodiment of the American dream. So from penniless runaway to protean polymath, he was the most illustrious figure in early America. And he truly was, as, as one reporter called him, the incarnation of the true American character. So you all know the story. On the convention's final day, Franklin delivered the last great speech of his life, urging adoption of the new constitution with all its faults, as Franklin said. And he found plenty of faults. He wanted federal judges, for example, to be elected. But Franklin, 81 years old, the oldest delegate, and at that point, the most renowned American in the world, he flexed his considerable diplomatic skills, and he implored his fellow delegates to doubt a little of his own infallibility, as he put it. 
He said, the older I grow, the more apt I am to doubt my own judgment and to pay more respect to the judgment of others. And I think we could all use a refreshing dose of that intellectual humility today, more humility, less superiority. Franklin was actually too frail to deliver that rousing speech himself. And a fellow Pennsylvanian, James Wilson, read it for him, but it was extraordinary and it worked. And there was unity, if not unanimity. And as James Madison scribbled in his notes, rather understatedly, if you ask me, the members then proceeded to sign the instrument. And we all know what happened next. Triumphant Franklin, he's approached by Mrs. Powell, who blurted out, well, doctor, what have we got, a republic or a monarchy? And Franklin delivered his famously sharp-witted rejoinder, a republic if you can keep it. So Franklin's zinger, it was heartening. A republic, no more monarch, no more royal absolutism. But it was also frightening, if you can keep it. It was ominous because it suggested that the survival of freedom depends on people and not on parchment. The duty of preserving our rich civic inheritance falls on us. We must ensure that our republic doesn't descend into anarchy or monarchy. And this is a job for everyday Americans like Mrs. Powell, who posed a question for the ages, the one that echoes even today, what have we got? This republic is ours, ours to keep, and ours to lose. But Franklin was not the first to recognize that the job to build this enduring nation is on us. 11 years earlier, on the same politically sacred spot, the Declaration, our original birth certificate, the greatest breakup letter of all time, proclaimed that we wanted government, as Lincoln put it, four score and seven years later, of the people and by the people and for the people. This uniquely American theory of government was a radical experiment. The first time that a nation came into being asserting the inborn, individual, natural rights and equality of every human being. So listen to this word choice. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. When government becomes destructive, it is the right of the people to change course. And when abuses and usurpations lead to despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government to provide new guards for their future security. So pre-constitution, the founder said the people wield supreme sovereignty over their government to lay its foundation, to structure its powers all according to what seems to them most likely to secure their safety and happiness. The power of the people is a truth that provides great comfort, but also grave discomfort. So fast forward to Constitution Day 2020, 23% of American adults still can't name a single branch of government. 19% can't name one right guaranteed by the First Amendment. 19% of adults under age 45 can pass a rudimentary 10 question, multiple choice quiz about the founding. Many Americans don't know the how of our republic because 
They don't know the why of our republic. Margaret Thatcher, she once noted that Europe, unlike the United States, is the product of history and not of philosophy. America is sui generis, she said, because it was built upon an idea, the idea of liberty. And she was echoing Churchill, who called the declaration a great title deed, praising the love of liberty and justice on which the American nation was founded. Madison, of course, agreed. The European vision, he said, was charters of liberty granted by power, as opposed to this radical American vision, charters of power granted by liberty. So our founders, they were imperfect, but they were inspired and they aimed for something transcendent, not to enshrine a mere process, democracy, but to enshrine a promise, liberty, ind individual freedom, the essential condition of human flourishing. So our founders, they, they gambled big. And in my view, they hit the trifecta. They had hindsight. They knew the history of kings and dictators. So they insisted on a government of laws and not of men. They had insight. They knew that government exists to ensure the blessings of liberty, that liberty is not provided by government, but it pre-exists government, that liberty is our natural birthright, not a gift from the sovereign or from politicians. And they had foresight. They knew that to safeguard liberty, government must be structured to control its power. So knowing that a bunch of guys dumped tea into Boston Harbor doesn't mean a lot if we don't know why they dumped it. Which of course, as the Beastie Boys taught us, was because you gotta fight for your right to pour tea. And if we don't grasp the why of our design, it'll never command affection and reverence. Most Americans now say they don't trust any branch of government, not one. American national pride is at, at an all-time low. Only 51% of American high school and college students report being proud of America. And just 46% say they're patriotic. The father of the country would be dismayed. Washington made clear in his very first inaugural that this is on us. He said, the preservation of the sacred fire of liberty and the destiny of the Republican model of government are staked on the experiment entrusted to the hands of the American people. And frankly, Washington himself was pessimistic. He confided to another delegate, quote, I do not expect the Constitution to last for more than 20 years. Thankfully, he was wrong. Some nations, they number their years in millennia. America is approaching its semi-quincentennial, 250 years. And God willing, this nation has a long life left, but how can we reasonably be expectant about our future if we're ignorant about our past? And I believe it's a short trip from ignorance of our founding ideals to erasure of them. When he was 28 years old, young Abraham Lincoln spoke of this rich legacy bequeathed us, how we are the legal inheritors of these fundamental blessings. 
And he warned how danger would spring from within, from the increasing disregard for law, from what he called this mobocratic spirit. The founding generation had died, and Lincoln was worried about lawlessness. He was worried about the perpetuation of our institutions. And the antidote, he said, was the attachment of the people. And attachment includes a reverence for the Constitution and laws. But civic illiteracy, obliviousness to the what and the why of America accelerates disattachment. Because if we don't know our history, warts and all, we can never understand our history. And we'll have nothing to hold on to, nothing to ground us. Just a few weeks ago, Ben Franklin, Mr. If You Can Keep It himself, who warned of the tendency of republics to implode, was himself targeted for cancellation, thus proving the wisdom of his insight. Franklin has gone from the first American, as one novelist described him, to a person of concern, according to a DC committee report. Franklin's name should be scrubbed from a historic landmark. And his statue should be, quote, removed, relocated, or contextualized. And it's not just him. George Washington, the man after whom the city itself is named, is also a person of concern. Thus, the Washington Monument, I guess all 81,000 tons of it, should be removed or relocated or recontextualized. And I guess notably, the DC panel made no recommendation on renaming the city itself. But I suspect that many of those we all saw on TV lassoing monuments want to topple more than statues. So amid today's pandemic, in my view, is something endemic, a deep misunderstanding of American self-government. Today's Constitution Day, but I think our confusion also runs to our true founding document, the Declaration of Independence. Jefferson called the Declaration an expression of the American mind. Lincoln called the promise of the Declaration an apple of gold framed by the silver frame of the Constitution. Lincoln explained that the picture frame was made not to conceal or destroy the apple, but to adorn it, to preserve it. The picture was made for the apple, not the apple for the picture. The Constitution exists to serve the Declaration's promise of liberty to all. The Constitution provides the tools to build the government that secures the rights proclaimed in the Constitution, I'm sorry, in the Declaration. The Declaration was high treason. It was a literal indictment of the crown in painstaking detail. It married disobedience with eloquence. Legend has it that one delegate who was afflicted with a palsy said as he signed it, my hand trembles, but my heart does not. Every spring, there's a colonial day at my kid's school, and I put on this itchy costume, and I unroll this scroll, and I recite the Declaration of Independence, accompanied by these tiny fifth grade voices, and they've memorized most of it. And the first two paragraphs, first two paragraphs are vacuum packed. There was no beating around the bush. 
There was no hemming, no hawing, no, no throat clearing, no gauzy phrases like irreconcilable differences. The declaration is declarative. So this was, this was the Festivus of 1776, right? This was the airing of grievances. And the founders, they dialed it up to 11. So the second sentence is the most famous. We hold these truths to be self-evident. And this line does a lot of heavy lifting. It declares, number one, these rights belong to us as individuals. Number two, they're fixed, innate, our natural birthright. They're unrelinquishable, unwaverable, unsurrenderable. And number three, they're God-given, so they may not be taken away by man. So the next sentence is where Jefferson kind of drops the mic or the quill. The ultimate end of government is to secure these pre-existing inborn rights. Boom, Jefferson said. So as Barnett, Professor Barnett, famously puts it, first come rights and then comes government. The Declaration unveiled the American theory of government. And its bottom line is clear, government exists to protect our individual unalienable rights, rights that are ours by virtue of our very humanity. But as that founding generation passed away, so too did that unifying principle in the Declaration. So in 1838, long before he was president, Abraham Lincoln, he lamented this mobocratic spirit that was sweeping the country. He worried that wild and furious passions would destroy what he called the strongest bulwark of any government, the attachment of the people. Lincoln warned that when the people lose sight of that which binds us together, the ideal of liberty enshrined in the Constitution, or I'm sorry, in the Declaration, this government cannot last. And again, Lincoln was just 28 years old when he warned of America being torn asunder from within and Fort Sumter was still 23 years away. So it is undeniable that at the founding, the ideals collided with the reality, America's original sin of slavery. One third of the Declaration signers were slave owners. We were flawed and we were stained at the start. Jefferson's initial draft of the Declaration included an anti-slavery passage, but it was cut. America is imperfect, as all human things are. Even so, the Declaration's underlying ideals are timeless, and they are winning out. Lincoln would not abandon them even to avoid civil war. So at Independence Hall, just before he was inaugurated, Lincoln described equal liberty as a gift not alone to the people of this country, but I hope to the world for all future time. The Declaration was a linchpin argument for abolitionists. And the Supreme Court in Dred Scott feebly tried to explain it away unconvincingly. So my favorite piece of art in my, in my chamber is an oil painting of Frederick Douglass. There's a picture of it. And in his iconic speech, What to the Slave, is the 4th of July, Douglas notes that the promises of liberty and equality in the Declaration are eternal. 
even if America broke those promises. So there was this jarring disconnect between the commendable words of the declaration and the condemnable deeds of those who adopted it. But these founding ideals, they still lay the foundation for righting wrongs, including the new birth of freedom wrought by our second founding and the Civil War amendments that belong at the center of America's constitutional story. And this quest to live up to America's ideals is never ending. It requires constant striving. Even the aspirational 14th Amendment failed to fulfill its promise during its first 75 years. But the central idea of the Declaration that all men are created equal, it set in motion this inexorable march. Dr. King, perhaps the most renowned protester in our nation's history, he called upon his fellow citizens not to tear down America's heritage, but to live up to it. After his own march on Washington, Dr. King demanded not that our founding documents be changed to fit new ideals, but that our government change to fit the enduring ideals of our founding documents, which he called a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. Perfection is elusive in this life, but bit by bit, amendment by amendment, we are drawing nearer to the first enumerated purpose of the preamble, formation of that more perfect union. So, so far, I've focused on the Declaration, our golden apple, which lies at the heart of the American project, but it is preserved through its silver frame, the Constitution. The Declaration is aspirational. The Constitution is architectural. The Declaration declared the purpose of government to secure our God-given rights, and the Constitution erected an ingenious structure to achieve that purpose. And it is imperative that we understand both documents so that as Lincoln cautioned, neither picture or apple shall ever be blurred or bruised or, or broken. The framers, they were not tinkerers. They didn't pledge their lives and their fortunes and their sacred honors to fiddle around the edges. They upended things. Madisonian architecture infused with Newtonian genius. These three co-equal branches locked in synchronous orbit, held there by competing interest, ambition counteracting ambition, as Madison famously put it. It was a radical structure that divided power in order to control power. And the most extraordinary element, these three rival branches derive all their power from three unrivaled words, supersized on the page for all the world to see we the people, not we the government, not we the judges, not we the subjects. This was an era of kings and sultans. And in that era, this was a script-flipping heresy. Nothing was more audacious, nothing more radical than the idea that sovereignty resides not in government, but in the governed. Popular sovereignty is a duty. It's not a mere theory. Shortly after the Constitution was signed, Jefferson wrote from Paris, 
wherever the people are well-informed, they can be trusted with their own government. But how can we give informed to say so if we lack informed know-how? We the people are meant to be watchdogs and not lapdogs. And Franklin's warning, if you can keep it, presumes if you know it, that everyday Americans will be well-informed and thus wield their sovereignty smartly. But again, we the people's civic illiteracy is staggering. 71% of Americans cannot identify the Constitution as the supreme law of the land. 63% can't name one of their US senators. 62% can identify the governor of their state. 10% of college graduates think Judith Scheinlin, AKA Judge Judy, sits on the Supreme Court. Madison warned about this expressly. A popular government without popular information is but a prologue to a farce or a tragedy or perhaps both. So get this, most of America's elite universities no longer require history majors to take a single course in American history. But there is a ray of hope. Naturalized Americans, those who have risked everything to help write the next chapter of the American story. When it comes to the US citizenship exam, immigrants, they get the job done. And do you know what percent of immigrants pass the civics test their first try? About 90%. And those same 100 multiple choice questions were given to some American high schoolers. And the passage rate, not quite as high, about 5%. So the generation with the greatest access to information is also the least informed. But an informed citizenry is indispensable to self-government. But even that is no guarantee of good government. Beyond education, you need engagement. And Franklin said, if you can keep it, because he knew the secret sauce was an engaged citizenry, American civic spiritedness. So here's how Tocqueville explained it. He said, the civic spiritedness of Americans is rooted in our three-dimensional sense of participation. Number one, we participate in creating our own and thus our nation's prosperity. Number two, we participate in the administration of local government, voluntary associations, what Edmund Burke called the, the little platoons of family and church and local community, all of which kind of incline us to civic virtue. And then finally, number three, through electing our representatives, we participate in the making of laws that advance our freedom and our prosperity. So American patriotism is anchored in that Tocquevillian vision of proactive citizens, sleeves rolled up, who take charge of their own economic and social and political happiness. American citizenship is not a spectator sport. And Justice Brandeis, I believe, put it well. 
He said, the only title in our democracy superior to that of president is the title of citizen. The Declaration and our Constitution are exquisite charters of freedom, but freedom requires patriots and not passers-by. They demand fierce defenders and not feeble bystanders. Take Lincoln. In 1858, he was a, by all accounts, a financially insecure, failing politician with no administrative experience. But the Supreme Court's Dred Scott decision, it galvanized Lincoln. And that June, he delivered his famous House Divided speech. It was poetic and it was prophetic. And while Lincoln lost that election, it was that legal analysis, his legal analysis of a judicial decision of all things that catapulted him ultimately to Mount Rushmore. Lincoln was no mere bystander. His civic education, his civic participation informed voters who liked what they heard and who leveraged that knowledge into sending that failing politician to the White House two years later. And indeed, civic education, civic engagement can ripple across centuries. So let me tell you about a tenacious Texan with a Mensa level civics IQ. So in 1982, Gregory Watson was a 19 year old sophomore at the University of Texas. And he wrote a research paper arguing that one of James Madison's proposed amendments to the constitution was still eligible for ratification. And this dormant proposal, it would have barred Congress from giving itself a midterm pay raise. It was part of the original batch that eventually became the Bill of Rights. And the teaching assistant was thoroughly unconvinced, unimpressed, unpersuaded. She awarded Watson a big fat seat. So Watson, fueled by fury and righteous indignation, he spent the next 10 years of his life lobbying state capitals from sea to shining sea until in 1992, the 27th Amendment was finally ratified, 203 years after it was first proposed. Gregory Watson got a bad grade, so he amended the Constitution almost single-handedly, and all it took was aptitude and attitude. And the cherry on top for Watson came three years ago, 2017, 25 years after ratification, he was brought up on stage and was informed that the university was changing his grade officially. And there's the official form, which states, in light of the student's heroic efforts to prove the professor wrong, Mr. Watson deserves A+. Last year, the federal judiciary convened its first ever national civics conference. Article three judges, including three Supreme Court justices, joined with law school deans, bar leaders, and others all the way from Maine to Guam to discuss how the judiciary could help boost civics literacy. A few weeks later, Chief Justice Roberts wrote in his year-end report that each generation 
has an obligation to pass on to the next, not only a fully functioning government responsive to the needs of the people, but the tools to understand it and to improve it. And the Chief Justice was echoing Justice O'Connor, who commendably has devoted her post-court life to civics education. And as she puts it, knowledge about our government is not handed down through the gene pool. And she, in turn, was echoing President Reagan, who warned that freedom's never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. And they're all right. This isn't something hardwired into our DNA as Americans. This, these habits of citizenship have to be taught and learned anew by each generation. And frankly, school children are often center stage when it comes to transforming our nation. So take Linda Brown, the schoolgirl at the center of Brown v. Board of Education. When the Supreme Court rejected racial segregation, it stressed the importance of education as a crucible for good citizenship. And honestly, for many students, schools may be the only place where they might be exposed to the American political tradition. But it won't be easy. A recent study examined the mission and vision statements of America's 100 largest school districts. And the study asked a simple question, what exactly is our purpose? I've always thought, I think the founders probably thought, that the chief purpose of education was to prepare the next generation for thoughtful and capable self-government. To know math, yes, but to also know how to take the measure of leaders. To know history, yes, but to also know what it means to be an American, to cherish our stunning political heritage and its vision of liberty and equality and justice for all, to help children be not just college ready or career ready, but civic ready. As Jefferson put it, if a nation expects to be ignorant and free, it expects what never was and never will be. Education, he said, enables every man to judge for himself what will secure or endanger his freedom. And for popular sovereignty to work, education must always underscore and never undermine our common civic identity. Education should instill in children a respect for American self-government and the tools to achieve it, to equip students, not just academically, but civically. But going back in the mission and the vision statements of the 100 largest school districts in America, the word America appeared exactly zero times. But schools shouldn't bear the full burden. I think judges play a role too. And as Chief Justice Roberts put it, he said, civic education, like all education, is a continuing enterprise in conversation. And judges, by virtue of their judicial responsibilities, are necessarily engaged in civics education. We explain our reasoning in written opinions. We lead naturalization ceremonies. We oversee mock legal proceedings. And we speak at school events. This past March, the Judicial Conference of the United States affirmed 
that civics education is a core component of judicial service. And the Administrative Office of US Courts has developed some really terrific online resources for judges and teachers and attorneys and parents. And as for attorneys, which many of you are, you are uniquely equipped to help. And the public spiritedness of lawyers has always been this defining feature of America. I mean, lawyers have played major roles in some of our most triumphant chapters. So 25 out of 20, 25 out of 56 signers of the Declaration were lawyers. 33 out of 55 delegates to the Constitutional Convention. 22 of 39 signers of the Constitution. More than half our nation's presidents. The legal profession, as Justice Brandeis put it 116 years ago, it does afford unusual opportunities for usefulness, as he put it, that are probably unequaled. He says there is a call upon the legal profession to do a great work for this country. Lawyers, they are vital community connectors and civic switchboards. And the profession may well be different today than it was in 1904, but the calling of lawyers to public spiritedness and to robust citizenship endures. So I'll wrap up with this. Um, at Disney World, uh, a few years ago, my children were mortified in the Hall of Presidents um, when I yelled out, woohoo, for animatronic Calvin Coolidge. There he is. But Silent Cal, he understood the ineffable genius of what happened 233 years ago today. To live under the American Constitution is the greatest political privilege that was ever accorded to the human race. But a republic comes with responsibility. Self-government is not self-perpetuating. It's tough sledding, and each generation must take its turn. But this raucous republic, it belongs to all of us. And his preservation is up to all of us. Franklin told Mrs. Powell, if you can keep it. And a quarter of a millennium later, with every tool laid at our feet, there is no longer a question of capability. There's only a question of culpability. America, we boast the oldest written national constitution on earth. What an extravagant blessing. But preserving that rich inheritance requires a culture that prizes liberty, that prizes public-spirited virtue. For now, we the people are, and through God's grace will remain, the world's oldest constitutional republic, if we can keep it. Thank you very much, Elia. That's all I have for you. All right, well, we can't really hear anybody, but I'm gonna applaud. So that was superb. And really it's the exception to my general rule that uh, PowerPoint is unconstitutional, at least as applied in 90% of cases. Uh, uh, no offense to other panelists earlier in the conference that, that, that used it, but that, that is a, a wonderful, wonderful use uh, of the medium. 
uh, brings to mind, uh, you know, we had uh, P.J. O'Rourke giving a, a lunch book talk uh, earlier this week. And, and I think uh, you're giving him a run for his money as a, as a constitutional satirist. I think we, we know what your, your next uh, writing project uh, uh, ought to be, both, both for you know, the middle school set and uh, for the general uh, public. Um, it also reminds me, I mean, that, that depressing statistic about the, um, the naturalization quiz, uh, which I took uh, about, uh, what, six and a half years ago, seven do? years ago now. And yeah, I passed it. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm not exactly the, the target audience, not exactly the normal um, person who's, who's the, the, the average uh, person who's naturalizing, but it was exceedingly easy. I mean, name a country that borders the United States to the north. Who was our first president given multiple choices? Mm -hmm. um, what are the, name one of the three branches. I mean, th those seriously, the universe of questions on geography, history, civics, uh, that is the nature of the, the closed hundred question set of which you are asked up to 10 questions that you have to get six right. That is wow. how you pass the naturalization question. To see that uh, only 5% of, of high schoolers, I mean, uh, well, I mean, me, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just one of the, like, like most immigrants, I do a job that, that most uh, native born Americans won't, and that's defending the constitution. <laughs> Uh, but the rest of us, I mean, you know, your presentation was, was funny and it was apt and it was driving the points home, but it's depressing, right? Because we're, it seems like by, by the evidence that you presented, we're not keeping the Republic. I mean, what should we do? Should we like broadcast you all over the world? I mean, should we, uh, is it a question of improving education? Uh, is it a, just a question of will, um, Ultimately, how, how, do we, how do we do this? Yeah, I don't know if I've cracked the code. It's kind of like judicial selection. I think every, every mechanism has pros and cons, but I think part of it is traceable to the fact that our, I think our educational system has largely moved to one focused on equipping students as they see it to make them kind of career ready, college ready. And there's a lot of testing that goes on in our public school systems. And what gets measured is what gets done. And so I think there's a, a really acute focus on, on core academic subjects. And I think that has had the effect of kind of crowding out um, the focus on civics education. Um, I don't know when that phenomenon began, but I think certainly just the nature of our system and how it's more focused today on kind of core academic subjects and equipping people for college and for careers. Um, I think maybe civics is viewed as kind of a soft subject that people can perhaps pick up at home or kind of pick up through osmosis, um, but it's just not a priority anymore. And I think we see the effects. We see the effects with how people misperceive, certainly my branch of government, Article Three. Um, there's a, kind of this widespread you know, bogus view that we're simply another kind of raw, craven political branch of government kind of force feeding um, our will upon people. Um, so I think it manifests in countless ways, but you look at these numbers year after year, 51% this year is the high watermark for the last 15 or 20 for as long as that survey has been going on. 
Um, and 39% was the all-time high, which was last year. So I guess there is a measure of kind of really faint optimism, but I don't know if all that is just sort of a result of kind of the confluence of, of things kind of percolating in Washington with enhanced attention paid to whether it's impeachment and seeing how the branches of government sort of all come together. Um, you got pandemic, you got recession, you've got all this unrest. So I don't know if that has sort of galvanized and captured people's attention, but certainly lawyers, as I mentioned, have a role, judges have a role, um, teachers, our school systems. Again, a lot of these students, they just don't get a lot of um, robust instruction on how American government allocates power. They don't get that around the kitchen table. Uh, much anymore these days. And I think schools for, for a lot of kiddos is perhaps the only place where they might be exposed to the American political tradition, but it seems to have been crowded out by kind of a pedagogical focus on other subjects. Well, we don't have any audience questions yet. I'll just remind everyone, if you're watching us on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube, you can uh, contact us at hashtag CatoScotus. Uh, or just use the Q&A function in the, uh, in the Zoom browser. Uh, there is one interesting comment. Um, Paul Marino says, sad but true, One four, 143 years ago in 1877, James Garfield, our 20th president, gave a warning to the American people. Quote, now more than ever before, the people are responsible for the character of their Congress. If that body is ignorant, reckless, and corrupt, it's because the people tolerate ignorance, recklessness, and corruption. If it be intelligent, brave, and pure, it's because the people demand these high qualities to represent them in the national legislature. And then, of course, Garfield was shot. So um, for what it's worth, um, while we build up some audience questions, um, I'll ask you a short one. Um, what's your favorite Federalist paper, and why is it number 51? <laughs> Uh, is 51 the greatest paper or the greatest of all time? It is, I think 51, um, you know, if, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. Um, one of my former law clerks, um, you may know this, but um, her firstborn, her baby had a onesie that had that, that famous passage um, on the onesie. Yeah, J Josh Blackman gives those out. He says, <laughs> the, the, the onesie says, I'm an angel, so no government is necessary. I'm an angel, so no government is necessary. Um, no, a 51 is hard to beat. That, that sets a pretty high bar. Let's see. Uh, here's a question from Enrique. It says, what about Trump? Hasn't he done the most damage to our republic? Now, getting away from kind of the, you know, topical things that'll get you in trouble with the Judicial Ethics Board, uh, do you see the trends that you're describing as ebbing and flowing, or is it all going in one direction? Like, for example, the expansion of executive power just keeps growing and ratcheting up uh, with each president. So, is this kind of a, you know, is it is it a zig and a zag, or is it something that you've seen over time? And if it's grown over time, I don't know how much you've looked at, looked at these various statistics. Um, you know, do you date it to 
you know, our, our kind of cultural revolution of 1968 or the post-war era or, you know, what, what, historically in terms of trends, uh, what's going on? I mean, trends in terms of people's awareness of... Civic engagement and awareness, work. yeah. yeah. Um, I think things are, I think things have always been sort of partisan in America. People talk in, in kind of nostalgic terms about how this may be sort of the most polarized and kind of viciously partisan era. The things were not exactly um, patty cake in previous generations either. Um, but there is something kind of, I think maybe perhaps unique about our current era. We kind of have kind of, I think everything sort of amplified by social media, certainly by, by kind of a, a journalistic community that seems focused on horse races and not kind of maybe a lot of in-depth kind of policy substance. Um, everything is kind of measured by clicks these days and what generates clicks and as well accentuating the fighting and the bickering and um, kind of how raucous and, and, and rancorous things are. And you mentioned my Twitter feed earlier. Um, I once thought when I first landed on the federal bench that I would give it maybe six months to a year and then perhaps I would come back. But the longer I'm away, the more convinced I am that I won't. And I'm still kind of lurking on Twitter. I still kind of, it's how I stay abreast of all the warp speed happenings in the world. And it really is neat to kind of follow a pretty riveting cross-section of people from various walks of life. Um, it can be an echo chamber um, if, you follow, if you follow only those people who kind of reinforce your already held beliefs. Um, but it is a way to, for information to ricochet in really fruitful, interesting ways. But it really is my primary news feed, is how I stay on top of everything going on in the world. But I can't imagine coming back. It, it is a sort of dystopian, kind of toxic <laughs> hellscape in many ways. And um, I'm happy to kind of lurk from a safe distance and follow who I want to follow. But the idea of kind of tiptoeing back, putting on my hazmat suit and tiptoeing back into the social media world is um, vicious. And, um, and um, but it really was kind of a burden lifted when I stepped away because it took energy. It took time to generate content and try to be um, interesting and engaging. And I think people were really astonished that a fuddy-duddy kind of bow tie wearing jurist can step out from behind the bench and come across you know, halfway normal or interesting. And, um, but the, the forced concision of Twitter is, is tough to master. It doesn't allow for a lot of nuance and things are very kind of serrated. And I think that serrated nature certainly carries over outside social media to kind of media in general. And we all kind of hunker down in our respective kind of echo chambers. We watch only those news channels that kind of reinforce our already held views. We listen only to those podcasts or only to those commentators, only those op-ed writers who kind of pat us on the back and kind of serve more as a tailwind that we're not really you know, confronted 
or challenge to think differently. And, and um, yeah, things seem to be especially kind of serrated in this modern age. And I think a lot of young people are tuned out completely. They don't want to put on a red jersey or a blue jersey. Uh, there was a recent survey that showed however disengaged American adults are, it is even more magnified among, among younger people under 18. And the one and only area where they were more civically engaged than their adult peers was expressing their opinions on the internet. So go figure. Well, I most miss the uh, we will it memes uh, about your kids. Uh, I, you know, I wish I could be off Twitter. I don't think uh, Cato's PR department uh, would appreciate that, nor my publisher, because I, I have a book coming out next week, Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations and the Politics of American Politics. What's my book plate? I said, get your book plate now. That, that's exactly right. You buy it, I'll send you, uh, I'll send you a signed book plate, because we can't do these in-person signings. Um, but listen, uh, a, a number of people have asked, they, they, they say your, your presentation is superb, which I think there's a majority opinion on, on that, no question. Uh, and they're asking, can we use it for my kids' classes and all this? And I'll just note, this will be available on Cato's website for public consumption within 24 hours. And the text of it, which will be less exciting and without the PowerPoint slides, although we might put in a few of the slides, uh, will be in next year's Cato Supreme Court review. Here's a question from uh, Philip Lammy, who says, do we know how homeschool children are performing on the civics test or generally on civics? Interesting. I've never seen data broken down by that. That would be fascinating to know. I know I've been invited by a number of kind of homeschool organizations and clusters and groups in the Austin area to come and speak to them. And I always happily and graciously accept. I, I want to go and kind of try to up our civics IQ wherever I can to kind of up our collective game. So I get a lot of invitations from homeschooling organizations and parents, and I, I uniformly accept them. And they seem very kind of on the edge of their seat, very engaged, very inquisitive, asking really hard, difficult questions. So I've never seen data broken down by that, by sort of the school setting, but I'd be really interested to know what it is. Here's a question from Roger Pallon, who hired me and set me up in this wonderful civics education gig that I have. He says, a magnificent lecture, you just pointed to the problem on modern lower education. What about the legal academy, where the agenda so often runs contrary to the principles you've so eloquently presented? Hmm. I mean, as I mentioned, I think the legal profession also has a, has a key role to play and it shouldn't really be, it shouldn't really be kind of captive or hijacked by partisanship. Heaven knows lawyers kind of run the gamut. There's enormous ideological um, kind of diversity among the legal profession. That's no surprise, but, but helping people sort of learn about our founding principles and how our constitution allocates governing power shouldn't be one of those issues that is just hijacked for partisan gain. I mean, I think Justice O'Connor, God bless her, has garnered well-earned kind of bipartisan praise for her efforts to, um, to boost our collective civics knowledge. I mean, this is all rudimentary stuff. And it's one thing not to know, you know the year the constitution was signed in Philadelphia, 
but it's another, so it's one thing not to know sort of these dry factoids, like, you know, how many of the signers were lawyers, but it's petrifying that so many of our fellow citizens, they flub even the most foundational, elemental, building block, architectural features like checks and balances and, and separation of powers. That kind of fundamental knowledge you know, isn't blue innately, isn't red innately. That's just kind of red, white, and blue. That's just innately American stuff to know. And um, so I don't see how, how teaching people, um, teaching civic virtue and self-government ought to be a partisan issue. I think lawyers, as I said, you know, given their unique roles in America, how they kind of patch people together, they serve as the kind of civic connectors. I think they're uniquely positioned, but also uniquely trained to know how our government works. Uh, I'm about to kind of put on my scratchy um, colonial costume again and go back over and hang out with the fifth graders. I thought about, you know, I usually recite the declaration on the scroll and I'll probably do that again, but I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of doing a rap this year. So I may put together some kind of hip hop version, which I think might resonate a little bit more with them. But some of the materials that the administrative office of U.S. courses putting together, they are very teen relevant. They try to, they really, they're not dry and it's just kind of, you know, kind of yawn inspiring. You know, they really try to be kind of current and kind of teen relevant. I think they've done a really good job with it. Well, Trevor has uh, offered uh, in the chat to write the beats. So please do the rap. Perhaps it would be a <laughs> sequel to Hamilton. I know Anastasia is a huge fan of that. So we would be very supportive there. You heard it here first folks. And I'm afraid that'll have to wrap it. I know we have uh, a bunch of late breaking questions. I would have asked them if you'd asked them earlier folks, but uh, we have to, you know, you can continue the discussion over Twitter where Don uh, is a lurker as, as he said. Uh, but you also uh, see why he was my uh, number one pick in the fantasy judges draft. I, of course, am in a PPS league. That's the puns per sentence. Uh, and so uh, there you go. Uh, I'll now uh, let, let's all just uh, thank Judge Willick. It's just a tremendous, uh, tremendous thank performance. So so. My, my clapping will have to stand in for the, 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 the masses. Um, well, I now invite uh, all of you to have a reception in the comfort of your own home. Um, it's raining in Washington anyway, so we wouldn't be on the roof deck. It'll be, it would have been some cramped indoor facility anyway. But uh, next year is the 20th uh, Cato Constitution Day Conference and Supreme Court Review. So we'll have to, given the money saved this year, we'll have to have double the food, double the booze, and double the liberty. Thanks very much, everyone.